We are live. Good evening, Great. ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Police Off the Cuff After Hours. I'm your host. My name is Mark DeMayo. I'm, I'm here with my co-host, my partner in all things law enforcement, the very funny Bill Cannon. What's up, Bill? Hey, Mark, what's happening tonight? We got a very esteemed academic slash retired police sergeant guest who's going to teach us some things during this uh, hour. Without, okay, so yeah, without further, uh, we don't like to keep our guests waiting on the sidelines. We like to get them right in. So I'm going to introduce you. He's a retired NYPD sergeant. He's a, um, and uh, now he's a psychiatrist, a psychologist, right? Yes. He's an, also an author, and he's here with us tonight to talk about uh, some very interesting topics that are very hot in the news right now. Dr. Daniel Rudafasi, folks, how are you? I'm doing great and great to be here on your show. I'm very proud to be um, invited here. And I know all the good work that you both have been doing and getting out the truth and getting out really important um, ideas to, you know, the membership. And, you know, I'm a brother in blue, too, unapologetically. Hey, Doc, we let you in the club. You know, once you have you getting that pension payments once a month, you're in the club. Um, <laughs> right. I got Pinky finger or what? Oh, I, I don't wear a pinky ring though. That's that's you know that's mostly an Italian thing. That's. <laughs> Where are you right now? Um, I'm in Brooklyn, and um, you know, in a part of my office. So. Okay. All right. So tell us about uh, to start. Tell us about your career a little bit, and then we'll get into um, the paper you've written and all these uh, what, what you got going on now. Okay, so, um, you know, I started off in the department in 1987. I was finishing my first math degree at NYU. And, um, you know, when I finished with the academy, I went into um, uh, Brooklyn North, and then, I'm sorry, Brooklyn South, Coney Island. And then after that, I graduated, went to Operation Pressure Point, which was the Lower East Side. And at that point, there were junkies out in the street, all kinds of crime, and um, uh, people were shooting up, doping up. It was the first time I learned, like, those little Mickey Mouse tattoos that they got on and paper things, that coke dope. I learned what a speedball was when somebody took out a spike that they were doing in front of kids, and um, I told him, you got to put it down. He chased me, and the question was, is that a dangerous physical instrument? Is it a deadly physical instrument? What would you do if he went and stuck you? Because these were real situations I was put in. I did very well. Um, I did so well that I got um, put into um, uh, Bed-Stuy, which I wanted to go. Uh, you know, it was what we would categorize as a war zone. And I'm saying that from uh, Dr. James uh, Chu, who's at Harvard. And he said it right. He said, when you have a situation, an urban situation, and say we're cops who live there, who work there, who are part of the community, something that's often forgotten, um, and endure all these crimes and trying to do rescue work, you got to stop and pause and consider what does that do? So in looking at the impact of trauma and loss, I was a street cop again, making a lot of collars. I think I amassed around 200 collars, but at the same time, I went to NYU, I returned, got my second master's degree, and my PhD. I had covered like, so you, you get a feel for it. Hey, yeah, oh, hold on. we could call you then cop doc. Absolutely. And, <laughs> and let me tell you who gave that phrase and who took me under his wings and belt, the real wingman, my mentor, and I, and, and you know, he shoulders ahead of me and he passed, very unfortunately, was uh, Captain um, doc, Dr. Al Banner who was out in San Francisco PD when I was doing my dissertation. And he said, this is great, you know, come join the club. And I said, what club? And James Reese who was the FBI guy who did mine hunters and all, Dr. James Reese. Uh -huh. And um, also Dr. Danny Conroy, who I owe a tremendous amount from St. Paul, <clears throat> Twin Cities, a cop doc out there. Um, they guided me. And, you know, I was looking at trauma and loss. I wanted to know what is the impact on officers who have to deal with cumulative trauma? And by cumulative trauma, I don't mean just, you know, witnessing a shooting and that, but we get actively involved. You know, when you're out and, and you um, go on a midnight to aid, 
on the 757-779-8184-889094, like when I did with my partner in the 80s, you were rocking and rolling. Hmm. So you, what is it, right? What, what's the casualty? What's the turnover? What happens with that is you need to cope with it. You need to figure out a way. Am I going to become like, and this is the truth. I looked on a precinct wall in the, in the squad and one guy told me, he says, listen, kid, when I came in, I'll never forget this. He says, you see that picture? And he points, right? And there's fried eggs. And he goes, that's going to be your brain in about three or four years of doing this job on the midnights. Good luck. And he says, listen, <laughs> you open up your tie. And he says, put the vest on the outside. Because if you get shot, you want them to be able to open you up and do what they have to do to keep you alive. No BS here. This is life in the streets. Yeah, but you know something, Doc, years later, people said you get yelled at for wearing your vest on the outside because they say now a perp knows not to shoot you there and he's going to aim for your head. Well, well, wait, that's that's really a great point, to, if I could, a segue to now. You know, I, I wrote and you got that article, Centurion Side, and I see you brought up, um, you know, Officer Lau and Ramos were at the funeral. And... You know, here you got an assassination, basically, of two incredible officers. Looking at Officer Ramos now, Detective First Grade, I believe they promoted him to correctly in Officer Lau. Officer Lau was going to um, uh, get married, a fine gentleman, very decent, and, and Detective Ramos, who was going to be a minister. So you get... This man, I think Ishmael, who was saying that he was going to put um, wings on, um, you know, uh, wings on, 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 on pigs or something like that as a metaphor. But that tells it all. The rants and the raves against police officers, the systemic racism, the um, implicit racism that's being ignored is um, deafening to me. Why? I'm a clinician. I'm a cop doc. I'm not a radical. I'm not a right winger. I'm not a left winger. I am a clinician. What do I mean by that? I want to conserve the values and traditions that are so important that the police culture have intragenerationally um, supported and, and, and have kept. And I say that unabashedly and unapologetically. How dare somebody attack a police officer, for example, as if we are one agglomerate, non-being, non-entity, persona non grata. And for me, I deal with a seculae, that's a psychological trauma, the impact when officers come off the street. And as I put it to, they're too scared to, tr to cry. Leonor Tur, who was the psy psychologist and psychoanalyst who did the Chowchilla kidnapping in California, as I put in one of my books, said that officers are too scared um, to, to cry, so a victim. But it's time that we allow, like you see in this picture, the family members, we are a, a large family, to be able to express our grief. We are human too. And I include myself in that. I wore the shield. I got injured in the line of duty more than once. I've been in all those situations. You see the wonderful police officer who was killed in the line of duty. This is too much grief to bear when there's no real acknowledgement within side of the communities by saying this is one of our own. Let me pause for a moment. One of the issues or, or problems I see it now is that in all this pontification that goes on politically, the reason that law and order is not able to really function well and perform well is that we are a disenfranchised group. And when I say we, again, even though I'm retired, I include myself as part of the law enforcement family, has been, was, and always will be. And dealing with the who come into me and tell me, Doc, this is what's going on. And I almost have to pause and say, it's been going on for way too long. It's time that officers get on track with the community by having the community acknowledge that officers are part of the community itself. We're not an occupational army. That's a rude insult. 
offices are diverse, uh, are all the different cultures in the world. We have different identities, different religious beliefs. And if you look at it too, I would say that offices are incredibly adaptive and resilient in a context of dealing with so much trauma, loss, and the ability to persevere in an environment where everything is second guess. Doc, let me just stop you for one second. Sure. All of those things, of course, anyone that's in the police, uh, the police family, whether that's in New York City or it's nationally or it's internationally, someone has hijacked the conversation and a very small group of people have tried to disparage this profession and they're doing a hell of a good job because right now they're winning with this whole defund the police, making people hate the police. It's really, how has that happened? How have we allowed a small group of people to steal this conversation? That is a wonderful question. In a course that I teach on international security and cooperation that I've been able to teach it in forensic psychology, I take a week or two to discuss national socialism, where as it was properly called, in 1925, National Democratic Socialism. Mein Kampf, the author of Mein Kampf, as we may know, out of Hitler, gathered together a group. And actually, in one of the wonderful Dr. Seuss books, he points out, and there's a picture I'd love to show, where it says, defund the police. Um, the aspect of racism is inclusive of every single group. But actually, the National Socialists had a very good strategy. They said, as people who are German at that time, or national Germans, we cannot be guilty of um, bias or racism. Isn't that interesting? Meaning that once we decide to legislate and we go along with it, meaning the entire population, then we can get bullied. Remember, too, out of Hitler was a, and a, and a National Socialist we're a very small minority. And if you put together the fact political correctness, which tries to occlude the ability to think and to um, ponder that there's a judicious approach in which people can be and ought to be liberal, Democrat, conservative, I think we all agree with that. And as a police officer, correct me if I'm wrong, when I trained, we were taught to almost be on the side and to allow people to um, be and live as they liked personally and their preferences as long as they didn't start to violate other people's personal space. And that's part of the Constitution of the United States. So to me, at one level as a cop doc, but another as a professor and an academic, I have very serious problems with intellectual freedom being occluded. And even more so in Centurion's side, Offices have not given up their ability to be able to speak their point and to be empowered and saying, I count too. How come, and that's my question to the media pundits, that that question is not being asked with a perspicuity to find out where you actually put your finger on the fault line at thrust. I'd like to see the pulse and find out why is that being hidden when a judicious approach would be to investigate that as a journalist. And to me, that's a shocking question, but even more so is the answer as, as you know, you're sharing with us too. Um, how did this come about? I, I think one more point that's very good. I had my students see the film on a, a number of different points where national socialism took place. And as a Jewish American, right? I also feel the bias is very interesting too. And terrorism is human evil, which I had the great privilege of having Colonel Danny McKnight from Black Hawk Down write the preface and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who was nominated for the Pulitzer, who by the way, I know is also under fire because of his views. The idea is to basically stultify the ability to have a difference of opinion. Now, I just want to give one more example historically. If you look at it in the history of our wonderful city, William F. Buckley Jr. and Gore Vidal were about the most opposite on the poles of left and right. Yet they had a civil discourse 
and they were able to communicate with eloquence and to um, express themselves even vehemently without destroying one another. And of course, there's a movie, The Best of Enemies, and it kind of characterizes their relationship. But however, it did not delacuse into uh, what we have now, which is basically, I will by force silence you. That is, is, is shockingly and stunningly an affront to any type of civilization. So on one hand, the left, we can say, and I'd like to say, not even the left, but a radical schism, um, which I think is anathema to both Democrats and Republicans, um, uh, are trying to hijack the process of a, of a uh, judicious, and, and again, I like to use that word because it's important, a balanced approach to talking through issues without malingering and, and maligning and, 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 and lying about opponents. Well, Doc, it also has to do with um, cancel culture. Like, how is that okay? Like, if you object to some historic figure that, you know, no, no one on this earth is an angel, right? But say say Ulysses Grant, if, if, if you object to him and his statue, that you can just cancel the fact that he lived and was a historical figure. That's too bad that you don't like what he did or, you know, and, and you, you can't erase the person from history. You know, I give an example that would even give a, give even give as much meaning and parallel that very excellent point. Can I give that example? Yes, go ahead, yeah, doctor, go ahead. Oh, so in my class in forensic psychology, which has got, gotten accolades at St. John's University, right? I present the case of Eichmann, and I have the students read some of the material from Terrorism is Human Evil that Eichmann actually spewed. I didn't say this, but you should know, I'm also um, an ordained rabbi. See, I'm a yarmulke, and I'm and proud of it. In, in addition to being a police sergeant and a psychologist and so on. And as I share with my wonderful Catholic, Protestant, um, uh, 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 Muslim, Jewish patients, so on and so forth, colleagues. It's very important to not forget about history and the tyranny within it. So if I say in cancel culture, just check this out. I don't want to have Eichmann in any of the books. I don't want people to see or know about Eichmann. What an idiotic, I have to say, deplorable and actually destructive um, directive. Because what's that, what that is actually saying is that I will silence history and I will quote George Santiana, who wrote in The Last Puritan in 1947, that he who forgets history is bound to repeat the lessons. And we have seen that again, iterate again and again. So this cancel culture, which is out to destroy history, is actually nothing new to do. Um, shall we destroy the Bible? Shall we also do what was said in Fahrenheit 451? Shall we destroy conservative books because they conserve tradition and values and the American family? Why don't we take Superman and burn Superman? You know, Superman was actually created in the 1930s in order to instill heroism. And heroism is key. Heroism to be able to um, overcome the process of um, uh, giving in and standing by while evil prospers. Wasn't it Edmund Burke in the reflections on the French Revolution who wrote the young lady who basically was saying the French Revolution is great. And he said something to the effect of when good men and women stand by while evil is performed, evil prospers. And that's exactly what happens. What is the... You mentioned the conversation with uh, Gore Vidal um, and uh, I forget who the other person is. Well, Buckley Jr. Okay. Um, but that's a conversation if uh, between two intellectuals. Right now, I don't think uh, there's, there's, a, there's a want for a conversation. We have one group that's trying to basically take over. They want to run the country their way. So I'm asking you right now, what if, if let's just say 
they got their way, what would their ideal utopia be? Like, how would the how would the United States be if the people in power right now got what they wanted? I, what, what is it that they want? I I would say in a chilling way, and in terrorism is human evil. I put it, and that's a great question to ask. Um, you know, if we project into the future, and I I actually did. I said that there would be a president that would come about that would want to make a deal with Iran and sit down, for example, and barter a deal. Let's just think about that even for a moment in international relations. I'll predict that that will be one of the linchpins for World War III. Our allies, Israel, that has been one of the democracies in the Middle East, is thrown under the bus. I know members of NATO that were in the international force before NATO became what it was and who fought in areas of Mogadishu, who were there when Sergio um, uh, was killed, Sergio, who was a diplomat, um, when the embassy went down. Um, the reality is that um, one is we're going to have a third world war because all the other countries are going to look and say, what a weak country. It's, it's it, the citizens are not being cared for. The population and those who actually are the centurions on the front line are thrown under the bus. In addition to that too, the lack of moral values and traditions, which are also not only being stopped, but even a conversation and education that's historic. What happened to the motifs that our society has been based on? That civilization is. Doc, doc, let me just let me just stop you for one second. I just want to mention something, and this is going along with the whole thing of what, you know, where are our values? And this was a quote from one of the mayoral candidates. Her name is Maya Wiley, and she made a quote that she said, "We can't do safety at the expense of justice. Um, we cannot, and that means we can't have stop and frisk." And it's not called stop and frisk. It's called stop, question, and frisk. But all the politicians and all the press like to hijack that that uh, police procedure by calling it stop and frisk. And or, or she says, or oh, the anti-crime unit. We can't have those because we don't need safety as much as we need justice. So, Dr. Dan, you're walking down the street. She's perfectly willing to sacrifice you to a robber or to someone who meaning to do you harm because it's more important to have justice for the person who's going to beat the shit out of you than it is to to you know what she sees as violate that person's rights so let's even talk about that too because that's also again you know i got the demeo canon duo here giving me great questions i hope i'm answering it with alacrity as best as i can and and what a wonderful question. So stop question and frisk, I totally am for renewing as street crime unit. We're talking about the incredible heroes. You don't know how many how many street crime fans are in the chat. There's a few street crime cops in the chat. Good. Well, I'm I'm with you. When I worked street, by the way, and and I was in bed size on a midnight eight in a patrol car. But and I'm not going to get into war stories when I commandeered a jag when I got a one day complaint. But <laughs> kid's life and so on. And this guy height uh, carjack grandma. So let me just stop and pause. Justice. Let's talk about justice. In order to have justice, we have to protect victims first. And so there. This is the interesting piece that I got as a question to this mayoral candidate. How could you talk about justice? without including one, the victims, and two, the guardians, first and foremost, that put themselves in the front line to do that. What is the motivation for police to get out there and do what they do? That's the question that needs to be asked too. When they talk about justice, justice is based upon the foundation of law. And in order to have law in common law, you have to have rules and regulations. Without that, how is it possible to have an orderly society? And without that, we can see what happens. Let me give a, a perfect analogy for her to go back to grade school or maybe middle school to learn. Okay. I would have her read Golding's Lord of the Flies. 
and yeah. you take a bunch of kids together and adults even more so and you don't have law and order see how long it lasts hey, yeah and and elise brings up she's one of our uh our people in the chat as uh, this is why military service should be mandatory like israel we should be less worried about pronouns and more worried about national security that's a good uh thanks annalise 100 percent. that's true you know we they, they're worried about pronouns you know that's the other thing they're worried about small little pockets of people rather than the good of of the majority well well here it goes if i can even um suggest they are trying to pin the majority against the minority but let's even think about it maybe and add a different perspective to to all the good perspective justice for all means that everybody has an individual case when it comes up so if somebody's innocent and we have a process that does that how does it become magical that some become more preferential than others and to me this bothers me because i don't want to say for example and just to bring this up as a so-called psychoanalyst colleague said that she dreams of shooting white people in the back of the head and that then she says well i've also written about the psychopathology of whiteness now stop and pause and i have a big problem with that i want to quote somebody to malcolm x when he came back from his journey to the middle east he pointed out something that was very interesting he says i thought i was with the brotherhood here and what he meant by that was um his identification as a black male muslim with the black brotherhood right and his idea at that point was that the whole world a Muslim was black, but he realized when he went to the Middle East that many were white Muslims. So in my article on Centurion side, would this professor who may be, and I don't know, she may be Muslim American, would she say that it's okay to be biased against white Muslims, which make up three quarters of the Muslim population? And is it okay to also trash an irish american who went through the potato famine who was called all kinds of disparaging names or italian americans by the way who are protected by eelc and by both racial and ethnic identity because i trained in eelc and is it okay for a jewish american who went through or had 37 family members lost in a holocaust from italy france and other areas of hungary to tell them that their whiteness needs to be apologized for. My question is, what is whiteness? What is blackness? Let's get rid of these pejorative labels that stigmatize and label and uh, occlude the ability to think of people in a more humane way. Stop blaming the victims. We can all say they're victims. Let's get to a bigger picture of how do we rectify this problem and start to treat people as our libertarian friends would say, as individuals. Doc, keep that thought. We got to go to a uh, commercial. Right on. Listen up, guys and gals. We are sponsored by the best hot sauce in the world, Silk City Hot Sauce. Silk City Hot Sauce is made uh, with small batches using pure ingredients, and the locally grown peppers are the foundation of every single bottle of Silk City Hot Sauce. There's many flavors from mild to wild, and um, if you go into a... Uh, Put in SilkCityHotSauce.com. You'll get a fifth. You put an OTC. You'll get a fifteen percent discount. That's OTC off the cuff, fifteen percent discount. There's a lot of great flavors. I use it every day. I love it. And uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna need another batch. By the way, Jeff Levine. Sounds awesome. You guys getting sick and tired of New York City? You want to move down south? Well, we got a realtor for you. Carol Waters, a realtor. She sells for um, Beach Realty Group down in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Carol was a bartender at the Fitzpatrick Hotel for 20 years, and from that, before that, she was from County Mayo in Ireland. Her husband, Rob Mayen, is a former NYPD officer who rolled over to the fire department. He and Carol are selling real estate down in Myrtle Beach now. They're two of the top salespeople. So if you're looking to move down to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, 
Give Carol Waters a call, 914-261-6681. Or you can reach her uh, by this email, Beach at gmail.com. Another guy who's been a huge, huge supporter of police off the cuff, Joseph Murray, a retired police officer and also an attorney. He's a great attorney. He's actually becoming a little bit of a uh, podcast uh, celebrity lately. He's been on a couple nights a week with uh, Duty Run. But anyway, he's got a website, Joe at jmurray-law.com. If you get any into any trouble, reach out to Joe Murray. Tell him that police off the cuff sent you. We're back. <laughs> yes. So uh, tell us about this. What's the name of the Centurion? It's it's something you wrote, right? Yeah. It, well, with I did an article with Phil Messing, and I just did a and let me just backtrack. I did a book on Aborigine police. And also, um, it was cool. Wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. You talking about from National Geographic's? No, I'm talking about from Queensland. I work with a sergeant, Matt Maloney, a great guy. Yeah, but that's uh, the Aborigines, right? Absolutely. And, uh, yeah, I remember those from National Geographic's. Right, and and you know we now say indigenous people, but check this out: the police there are great in Queensland, and they have to deal uh -huh. with things like PC, cancel culture, walk, and all that now. My um, my dear friend... Uh, they have to deal with that too? What's that? They're dealing with that over there too? Oh, they're dealing with it. Yeah, yeah. And But you got to check this out too. Barry Port was a last tracker, uh, and he happened to be an Aboriginal um, member. And in this book um, on Aboriginal um, trails, um, trial trails and travails, using psychology with Aborigine police, um, we wrote a, a, a tome together, and that one captures some of the struggles that they have there. And the funny thing is, he and I were saying, all these dilemmas that we're going through again now, we're kind of settled. It's an interesting question why they reemerge again, but let me just go back to that. In that book, I point out and I shared what I call Centurion side. And I wrestled to come up with that name. We all know what Centurion is. It's the- Dewey. Safety I don't know what it is. What is it? <laughs> well, well, well it's, a, it, it's a term that was used, right? About yeah. on the front line, going all the way back to Caesar and even before. And, and um, it's a noble title. It's what we do. You know, serving the public, putting ourselves in the front line, um, and even giving our lives as part of the community. And what I insist in there, and let me just start with Centurion side, it's the systemic, um, psychological, emotional, existential, which is important to in our heart and soul, attack on police and public safety, which has resulted in, for example, 75% of offices being assaulted within five years. Um, the homicides of offices. Look, by the way, Captain David Dorn, who happens to be an extremely important centurion, I read about him. What happened to his death? How come we don't have outrage in national days of mourning? How come? Do you know that he happened to be, and I use that as one aspect of his very wonderful, blessed, complicated life, black American, and serving his community when the riots were going on, and he was killed in a line. Did Doc, Doc do, you mean those, do you mean those peaceful protests that lasted for seven months and did billions of dollars of damage? that what you were referring to? That's exactly what I'm referring to. You got it. Yes. Well, here it goes. The Centurion side asks the questions. How come police have become acceptable as persona non grata? How come professionals that are clinicians, I like to ask this, other psychologists and psychiatrists have basically gone along and forgot their duty to protect and to serve all citizens? How can a psychoanalyst come out and say that she hates white people and not only hates but wants to shoot them in the back of the head and she doesn't have white friends. That should be anathema and forbidden and banned because that is against the practice of medicine and health. 
It has nothing to do with anything else. Above all, do no harm. How do we forget the principles of science in this mess? And the answer is because we do have, unfortunately, a national socialist movement. Going back to your question in the Domeo part of the team, I, I think the reality is, is that we're already here. I mean, it's only a matter of time before Fahrenheit 451, but let's think about it. Blocking people from their Facebook, from YouTube, from Twitter, what is that all about if that's not burning their memory out? How do we get away with that? I want to see attorneys come up and say, you know what, Dr. Dan's right. How come police are not getting the same rights as veterans? And by the way, I have veterans from the military who have served, including good Colonel Danny McKnight and Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who agree totally with that. We need to be protected in academic institutions. We need to have hospitals. And here's another point, too, if I could just bring up. Dealing with a mentally ill person on the street, because it's included in here. All these cases that have made the limelight, who is responsible for those situations escalating to what they have been? How come the mayor's office did not get a team, like I suggested in dealing with a mentally ill person on the street, of police officers who are mental health professionals, medical professionals, training and educating in scholarships and putting the money where it counts? You want to educate, pay for scholarships for officers to go for their Doc, we had this guy, Sean Connorboy, on our show. He um, was the good Samaritan that got involved with the uh, the lady was getting stabbed in the train by a, by a psycho, uh, you know, a mental patient. And he jumped in there and he saved her life. He jumped on top of him and uh, the guy was amazing. You know how many people called him from the city? The mayor, the governor, the police commissioner? Nobody. Not one call. The only people that covered it was the New York Post. So we're living in a world right now that they don't want to show that there's crime going down in the in the subways. And if, God forbid, if a, if a good Samaritan steps in, um, just so you know, you're not going to make the cover of the paper properly because uh, they don't want they don't want to recognize you as a hero. They don't want to recognize that we have a problem. They don't want to recognize that they made a mistake, that these people that are in the street right now and punching people, these are people who um, have mental health problems. They're probably off their meds. If they were going through the system in some form or fashion, be getting arrested or spending time in, in a mental institution, they would at least be getting checked up and getting their meds every once in a while. They would be off the street every once in a while. It wouldn't be it wouldn't be out there 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and you know, doing getting arrested three times a day. So what they're doing now is wrong, and I don't know what they're doing with the money. By the way. He I'm sorry, Mark. I just wanted to show this. A woman who was being stabbed on a subway platform in Manhattan. This exclusive video of the attack. And any minute now, President Biden is expected to talk about the ceasefire between Israel yeah. and Hamas. Anyway, listen. I don't want to hear about that. No, so wait, we're going to see the attack. Scream. And so that's enough for me. Sean Conaboy says he acted on instinct. He was waiting for a train in the Union Square subway station last night when a woman was suddenly viciously attacked. This surveillance video was obtained exclusively by Eyewitness News tonight and shows the suspect walking toward the woman with a large knife in his right hand. She doesn't see him coming, and in an instant, he attacks her from behind, stabbing her in the back and chest. Sean doesn't hesitate and pounces on the man, desperately trying to stop the attack. And I just jumped him. I just tackled him, jumped on his back, and down to the platform surface. I'm trying desperately to keep him down, face down, because I know that if he gets up or if he can turn on me and he has the... I mean, that's an... That was yeah. great. Wasn't that great? Awesome guy, awesome scene, but I want to stop and pause and just look at it from a psychological point of view. That was not instinct. That was values, that was a moral compass, a courage, a bravery, an existential moment that he stood up heroically to do the right thing. And the response should have been magnanimous to responsively and responsibly 
come up to the plate and say, this man is a hero, and to show this and to present it to our young, to our youth, instead of trying to circulate around all kinds of binary identities and, and so on and so forth, let's talk about this for a moment. The Doc, let me stop you for one second. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, thank you so much for the $5 super chat. Counselor Joe Murray, thank you for the $20 super chat. You're keeping us in business here. And the doctor understands the 40-minute hour. We're, we're, we're a 60-minute hour here. So thank you for the <laughs> people that are uh, Annalise. Oh, my God, that offender needs a knuckle sandwich. Yes, he absolutely does. And we want to shout out to all the people that watch us all the time. Lieutenant Pranzo, Janine uh, Goodwin, uh, Grizzly Books, Gisela, you're, you're becoming a big fan. Uh, Joe Murray, of course. MC's Audio, Annalise, Stephen Revo Gates, Doc Dan for Mayor, he said, uh, Mr. Smith, um, gonna sing some of the same people, uh, MC's Audio, Scotty Wagner, uh, of course, Ryan Investigative Group. Um, if I missed anyone, I apologize. I'll try to get you up later on. Sorry, Doc, we have to shout out to our fans. No, that's great. And that's important. Caring for those who you need to care for. They're part of the group and and the folks that keep us going we have to stay together and that's just it i'm a guy who's part of the salt of the earth like you i may have the academic credentials this and that they may be a little different or background we all do we have our strengths and weaknesses but just to get back to that if i could um the idea like just think about this too the west side i hear you know when i first found out about it who is it? Um, you have Schumer, you have Nadler. They're all quiet about um, making these hotels in the West Side fill up with the mentally ill persons. And they go, this is great. We're helping them out. No, you're not. What you're doing is you're just finding a place to have a depot like the Port Authority. But who is giving them the care? Who is giving them the compassion? Who's assessing and diagnosing? And as, again, we just looked at, who is going to actually make sure that they get their meds, their treatment, their group processes, and what's happening to the, to the business people? Look at the guy who just stepped out. I don't know what he does for a living, but he's a hero. They don't even go into that at all. But yet, somebody who is a perpetrator with a long record can become a national hero. We are... Actually, if we look at it, it's blaming the victim. I like to look back because I come from an American political tradition that Richard Hofstadter spoke about, Irving Goffman, which would be called liberal. And actually what was liberal then is really called conservative now. Think about it for a moment. Yeah, yeah you're right. Right? It's yeah. true. We are the civil libertarians, and actually we're being called those who are narrow-minded. And if you don't include both groups in a conversation, how can you possibly call the other person, you know, totalitarian or authoritarian? I give an example. Now, going back to, um, you know, the National Socialists, they were, the, they were the masters of deceit. And so, for example, when there was resistance against the Nazis, they would call them terrorists. <laughs> you know, but this is exactly it. The police were the first ones that were attacked in National Socialism. The legitimate police in Germany and in Italy were attacked. And by the way, I wanted to stop and just say a historical point many people may not know, but which is really interesting. Somebody was sending me something about what um, Jerry Nadler was talking about in rebuking Israel. And basically, um, who was it? Netanyahu for saying he didn't want to have Omar and he didn't want to have Talib in as congresswomen. Well, I think that was a wonderful choice because he's talking about public security. How do you legitimize somebody who was actually saying that they hate um, Zionists, which is saying that Jews should not have a homeland after the Holocaust? How do we even come up with that? Um, should people um, of Italy not have, or Italians not have Italy? France should not have France? It doesn't really make sense. 
And the reason I'm bringing it in to go back again is this double play on words is flatulence. It's hot air. It has to be confronted at least in an academic atmosphere. Well, Doc, if you, if you look at history, American history, you could just go back, look at the movies that came out a couple of years ago, glorifying the uh, the communists that were hiding in Hollywood. Okay, yes. uh, they were blacklisted. Okay, and then you know, my father came here in 1964. He got radicalized in college. He came here from Dominican Republic, and before you know it, he was uh, a socialist and a communist and uh, an atheist and you know, on the unemployment list. So, <laughs> you know, almost this, list, almost list. unemployment. <laughs> this thing, yeah, exactly. You get involved with all that unless you're on the top, you know, unless you're the head of the BLM and can literally uh, give up the, the seat because you already have the four houses that you need right now. Because uh, <laughs> that's what's happening. That's exactly what happens. She abandoned, she left, she, somebody else has taken over. She's taking the heat with her, and she's going to just chill out in the four houses and the money that she's she's packed away. Do you know how many morons in this country gave money to them, and they took that money? Just the people at the top there, and you'll never see a dime of it. You gave you gave all your money to four people. Well, well you know, that also kind of segues into this idea, too. At the end of National Socialism, what was the result? Think about it for a moment. In, you know, in that movie Downfall um, by uh, Oliver Hirschbiegel, it's a wonderful film and I show my students, Hitler turned on the German people and when he was told that they are going to be decimated, at least let some of the generals go, let some of the others, he ranted and raved and said, they are the effeminate Jews that are German. They said, these are German citizens. So he couldn't even put it off and he said, no, they deserve to die. They deserve to be destroyed. The glorification of death, the glorification of violence, the glorification of tearing apart the moral fiber are all interconnected in a lattice. It's our inability to say, in God we trust. You see, I'm saying it. Mm -hmm. I hope I'm not disbarred tomorrow, but if I do, I'll be going to Dershowitz. Well, the good thing about living in a country like this is we have 50 states. And right now we have across the country that every state uh, is completely different. We were completely divided. And what, like for example, take this political uh, race theory thing they're trying to shove down that you have uh, people, uh, you know, parents from all over the country right now fighting against this. Um, uh, so you have actually laws, uh, states that are coming up, laws that. Uh, to to, uh, to not include it in the curriculum, so that's the good thing about having fifty states here. You can try you can try your hardest to pass this stuff, but it makes the other side and it locked down even harder. And, and we're going to see a, a huge turnaround with, with the voting right now too. That's well, gonna I'm hoping so. And and you know just just to say too, I I think that's the key. That even those of us who would normally not run for office and not even be interested may be compelled to step up to the plate. Um, I was thinking about, you know, like Bill Pepitone. Yeah. He's a police he officer. We, we, we had him on our show. Great, Great guy. But, you know, unfortunately, he doesn't really have a chance to win because I don't think that anyone uh, other than a Democrat can win the mayoral race in this city. You know what, though? I think this is my belief that there are Democrats that actually are starting to realize the radicalism. At least I'm hoping, you know, I told Bill that I told Bill, I said, right now, with all this crime, you're not going to win the mayoral like this. Uh, Maya, whoever the hell she is, she shot herself in the foot. That's the dumbest thing that she could ever said. The city right now. Plus, she has her own security. Eric Adams called her out. So you're over here wanting to defund the police, and you're walking around New York City. You're just a candidate right now. You're not even the mayor, and you have your own security. Angie Yang, thank you so much for the 999 super sticker, Mr. Smith. Thank you for the 499, and Steve Cologne. You guys are keeping us in business. Thank you so much. Uh, Mark's so correct, and I mean, when these people say this, all this anti-police. Soon as I hear a candidate say defund, I just want to say you just disqualified yourself. But one of the biggest problems in New York City is voter turnout. 
And with 8 million people and they only get 800,000 people showing up, anyone could win this race. Well, wait, let's take a look at it, too, because I like to get to the fundamentals, the meat and potatoes of it, right? Check this out. They wanted to fund the police. So their point is we're going to get security from our people in the community, correct? Mm -hmm. They're going to, like, get their own little security force together. So they're going to get an untrained force. They're going to go and they're going to have to still enforce the same type of laws that they create within their community. Within a day, they would be paralyzed. Because why? What happens when you take a civilian like a reporter? We know that. And you take them down like Geraldo Rivera. I remember back in the days, he went into the funhouse, right? Up in the Bronx. And he started to shoot and kill everybody. And he even he stopped and paused and he said, you know what? They will fail that test. Yeah. yeah they will fail that test. Hey, let me tell you something right now. Okay. Uh, this is where I disagree with Bill because... It, What's going to happen is you're going to get a mayoral uh, after the the primaries right now. You'll have a mayoral candidate, and then they'll have the Republican primaries. You'll have a Republican candidate, and then you're going to go through the summer. And there's going to be some incidents, some big-time shootings. And both those two people are going to have to step up and answer to what they're going to do in those situations. And one of them is going to have better answers. And that's how Giuliani won. You know, it's all about climate. If you get Curtis Lee and all of a sudden he's up against Eric Adams, you don't know what could happen. You know what I'm saying? It could be a really, really bad summer. And unless somebody's going to put their foot down and says, I'm bringing back stop, question, and frisk, you know, he's the first one to say that and everybody jumps on board. Yeah, fuck it. We need it. Let's go. Yo, but another another thing they did, Doc, was this ranked choice voting. Yeah, what, yeah. That's scary. Where did that come from? Right. I mean, question, right. So, you know, but here it is. It makes sense. Think about it for a moment. We've given up the ability to discern, and we are frightened to say discriminate. But as a scientist, I always got to discern and discriminate both. If I get a diagnosis, let's say, and I say, hmm, is that depression, anxiety, trauma, is it grief? I better be sure that, you know, I get that correct. Because if I don't, then that will also militate whether or not somebody gets a certain medication, a certain milieu, or if I'm looking at a case from a forensic point of view, I need to really know what's going on and to be able to say, this is good for you and that's not. I have to have that ability, meaning to, if I have um, no, no um, strength to be able to say, hey, you know what? I think this one is a candidate that's best, and I think the other one is not, then what do I really have? I can't discern. So it's like, well, do you want, let, let's do it too. Do you want coffee, tea, lemonade, or do you want to have a beer? And he, um, you know what? I, I think I have the coffee first, then I have lemonade, then I have a tea, a beer. And you know what happens then? You get indigestion and acid reflux. And that's exactly the type of thinking that fogs the brain of people who cannot discern and just, well, oh, I'm voting one or the other. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. Um, you got to give it up to the the detective. Look at that little boy that was killed in his own house, uh, 10 years old. Um, and the detectives that handled that case and wound up catching that perp, just amazing work. Shout out to them. Um, but those type of cases are the ones that uh, really turn the st the cities collectively their stomachs upside down. The hardworking people, okay, and they, that's how you create um, a unity amongst those people. The people who've had enough. The people that they're scared of the gun violence and how a bullet could come through their window and they're in a sh you know uh, not the best of neighborhoods. That's how you get everybody together. So brace yourselves. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a crazy summer. No, and, and, and if I can, you know, just to share on that point, I worked in Bed-Stuy, East New York, Fort Green. I felt part of the community. In my book, Dealing with a Mentally Ill Person on the Street, I talk about Mrs. Jones, an African-American lady, a wonderful lady, a social worker, caseworker. She lost her, her husband, her son. And she's up there and she's alone and it's, and it's Thanksgiving. And, you know, a lot of the guys were like, oh, no, another call from her. She's like an EDP. But then, you know, 
the officers who knew how to schmooze and do community policing because it was appreciated then. And goes up to Mrs. Jones, sits down, has a coffee, schmoozes her, and then she says, the hoodlums are downstairs, I can't go to church. And then she, then officer, you know, over there goes, we'll take you down, we'll make sure you're okay. That's policing. And guess what? The majority of people who live in the projects and, and really exist here know their cops are good people. And they're good people. And there's a wonderful relationship that's forgotten. And also, what I put in my books, too, that are forgotten, who is the one who goes to bury an unidentified kid is the police who live in that precinct. Irish, Italian, African-American, Jewish-American, everybody. In other words, the point, male, female, so on and so forth. It's basically us, the salt of the earth cops who come from middle class or whatever you want to categorize us as. We're all individuals, but we do care about the community. And we love people of color, all color. We love people of all backgrounds. It's true. If you're a good you know, Dr. Dan, you're 100% correct. And we all just mirror exactly what you're saying. And I look at cops as the salt of the earth. And, you know, one of these days, I, I think I want to move down to Florida. And I want to move to a community that has a lot of cops. Because, A, it makes me feel safe. And, B, I have, like, instant friends. You know what I mean? But wait, let, let me just share with you one one point, if I can say, right? A quick one, because we're coming up on the hour. Yeah, we're yeah. coming up on the hour. It, it, is that, but please stay. You know why I say that? For me, too, I've had my moments. But people say, why are you so crazy to stay? Well, I say, one, because I'm a shrink, and I'm a little bit nutty. And I'm just joking around. Yeah. <laughs> All psychologists are nuts. What are you Absolutely. kidding me? <laughs> right? Yeah, a little bit of sugar. But, but talking from you know, the hip and the heart. Here it goes. The reality is this is our city. We cannot give up on it. And the truth is, with all the blood, sweat, and tears, I think New Yorkers are still all most a good people. And a lot have been also hijacked by these group of radicals who have the biggest voices, but the majority of people of every background, of every culture. I agree with you, Doc. You know, Doc, I'm going to use a cliche. The emptiest barrel makes the most noise, right? Yeah, empty tin can. But we got... The empty tin can makes the most noise. Hey, Doc, I'm going to tell you something right now. I'm not leaving New York City unless all the fans of Police Off the Cuff can help us out and make this show really big. <laughs> make some money doing this. We have, a lot of, we have a lot of fans down south, though, too. What you do, I'm recording this show from South Carolina. I'm going to call up um, – <laughs> what's your name? I'm calling her up, and we're getting Myrtle Beach. That's where I want to go. That's, That's right. my dream place. No, I'm not running from New York City. I'm just you – know, I'm tired of, like, winter. Yeah, running, you know, listen, I've been here my whole life. I, I deserve a break. And, you know, Angela Eng is in the live chat, and she's a little nervous that her boyfriend, Joe Murray – is becoming a podcast celebrity, and he's getting <laughs> and he's getting so many comments from the fans. Oh, he's so handsome! He's so handsome, you know. <laughs> Angie, it's all right. You'll always have us here. <laughs> anyway, Doc, thanks for coming on, man. You were a great guest. And shout out to Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, Harlem Raiders forever. We appreciate you, Lieutenant Pete, and of course, uh, uh, the bride always by your side, and uh, Rachella, and uh, you know. Mark and I got to come out to your uh, abode out on the North Shore of Long Island soon on one of yeah. these weekends. I would it's, definitely uh, do that. And Angela Eng just said her, her boyfriend can still do the podcast out of state. So, Joe, <laughs> just just watch your P's and Q's. <laughs> and, Doc, you were a fantastic guest. And uh, I told you this was going to be a fantastic show. And you didn't disappoint. Well, do you have any, anything to plug? Yeah, I, I'm just going to say this. I, I think, you know, and like we said, all these squeaky, you know, um, pontificating pinheads, as we <laughs> they're going to do that, but we're like a lion. We're going to roar. We haven't even begun. And I'll leave it with that. Roar with the victims, the real victims, and, and backing up the public safety and the centurion side and... and acknowledging that and the wonderful cops and the union leaders that are being bashed all over for doing their job right. And I do believe this will take back the city. We really will. I believe it too. Thank 100%, you. 100%. Uh, on behalf of 
very honored. <laughs> Thank you, Doc. And by behalf of Mark DeMeo, Bill Cannon, and Dr. Dan Rudafaso, I think I said your name halfway correct. Uh, thank you guys for watching, and uh, we're police off the cuff after hours signing off. Thank you.